0: Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 191 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Sarah Fawn Montgomery. And here's a bit about Sarah Fawn. She's the author of Halfway from Home, which is from Split Lip Press, 2022. She's the winner of the 2023 Nautilus Book Award. She's also the author of Quite Mad, an American Pharma me- memoir. That's from the University, excuse me, from the, the Ohio State University Press, 2018, as well as three poetry chapbooks to her name. She has a craft book on writing disability forthcoming with sundress sundress publications her work has been listed as notable and best american essays many times and her poetry and prose have appeared in various magazines including brevity catapult cincinnati review eric electric literature fourth genre literary hub new england review the poetry foundation the rumpus southeast review terrain and others she holds an mfa in creative writing from california state university of fresno and a PhD in English and creative writing from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She's an associate professor at Bridgewater State University, where she teaches creative writing and disability studies. Hello, and good morning slash afternoon. How are you?
1: Hi, good. Good to be here.
0: What, What would be the mascot for Bridgewater State?
1: Oh, we are the Bears.
0: You are the Bears. Okay. Bears. Okay, so I have a good friend who's from... Bridgewater State University, and I want to go to him next time and say, go Bears. Okay, thank you. Oh, definitely. (laughs) All right, all right. Thanks again so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I, um, You know, the the thrust of our conversation will be about halfway home, halfway from home, but uh, I'd love to ask you about your early reading, writing relationships or your relationship with reading and writing. Um, You know, were you the kid always at the library? Were you there's some beautiful moments in the essays about your father reading to you but you know how did that work with um the written word in your on your household and in your own life
1: yeah well first of all i don't think there's anyone who is a reader or a writer who wasn't always at the library and doing those hmm. summer those summer reading challenges um, <laughs> but my mom was also a preschool teacher so oh, okay. i was read to all the time Um, in my early years. I'm always with the book. Um, My mom read to me every night. My dad read to me um, when he could. Um, And so when I started school, kindergarten, I already really loved to read, um, could read pretty well on my own. Um, But I'm from a very of rural working class family and so once i started school the stories at home kind of stopped um Mm -hmm. not because my parents didn't want to read to me but they were busy they worked really long hours um the majority of folks in my family did manual labor Um, so my dad for example worked in construction and he worked 12-hour days six days a week. And so he was just exhausted when he would get home. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't see a lot of the adults around me reading, but they were great storytellers. So Mm -hmm. my dad had these amazing stories from job sites. Uh, The women in my family had amazing stories of things that they saw at work and as mothers and sort of um, keepers of the home. Um, And those are the stories that I was really drawn to. And, And when I began to sort of want to be a writer later on, those were the stories that I wanted to tell because you know, the, the men in my family, they built fences and houses and mm-hmm. entire worlds. And the women in my family built meals and um, clothes for the family. And mm-hmm. those were the stories that I wanted to read. And I didn't see them very often uh, in literature mm-hmm. in, in high school and college. So that was the kind of stories that I wanted to write when I began to write.
0: Well, oh, thank you for that. I wonder who who you were reading, especially in those earlier days. Who were some of the ones who really um, ignited that that passion for reading? Yeah You'll so there some of the works yeah
1: yeah, I would say the, the books as a very, very early child um, that I loved that my mom read to me. I loved Beatrix Potter. There's yes. a great book called Jamboree, Blueberries for Sal. Um, anything where people are outside um, in nature, anything where there's an animal talking and doing something I'm all about. Um, <laughs> and then later on, I loved anything with a messy, complicated female narrator. So the mm. Ramona books. Um, I loved you know, Louise and books. I loved the Wrinkle in Time series. Mm. Um, so those were the, the books early on. Um, you know elementary school and then I had a wonderful teacher in high school that um, gave me a stack of Joan Didion when I was a junior Uh, and said you need to read Joan Didion she said you have to read these I'll give you a couple weeks and you have to come in at lunch and we're going to talk about these Um, and that began my love affair with nonfiction.
0: Yeah well I know Joan Didion is often associated with my my town Sacramento my town, like I'm the mayor, you know, where I'm from. And I wonder, like, if you felt like she was quintessentially Californian or what was it about Joan Didion that really drew you in?
1: Yeah, I would say Joan Didion represents a particular vision of California. I think her work is interesting to read in different, um, I guess, eras or decades. Um, I think that I read her very differently now as an adult living Mm -hmm. in 2023 than I did, you know, in the 90s or early 2000s when I first came across her. Um, But for me, what drew me to her was I... I don't think I'd read anything that was considered nonfiction until that point. Um, mm-hmm. I read a lot of novels in school. I read a lot of short stories and so to read essays that were on ideas or essays about complicated feelings or essays with strange research. And it was mm-hmm. the reason I was really drawn to her. Um, and it was kind of writing that I wanted to try out myself.
0: So I mean, she, she's, I don't know how much she writes about it. I can't say that I'm extremely knowledgeable. I know she writes a decent amount about being like, Descended from some of the first like European pioneer families. Right? Yeah. So it brings in like class. I mean, do you, when you talk about like you read them differently now, is it kind of like, you know, you're reading her work as kind of like an ivory, she writing, she's kind of writing from an ivory tower, like, um, or just simply like we read everyone differently 20 years later than when we were kids.
1: I think it's hard to read anybody now without the context of our sort of social and political and, and environmental landscape, but there is a fair amount of privilege in the voice, um, I mean, in a lot of her work. I think that it, the privilege, it's recognized in some of the essays, not in all of them, um, but I think that that's an important thing to consider is her privilege as a writer in those early pieces.
0: You know, they'll say like, oftentimes in America, we, well, we definitely don't talk about race enough. You look what happening like in Florida and all of that. We don't talk about it in the right ways, but people say, you know, oh, sometimes, you know, race can be talked about, but class, we don't talk about that as much, especially like in comparison, like let's say England. Do you, have you found that to be true? I and mean, you talk about coming from like a, a working class family and rural as well, you know, you on the coast for the most part, you know, off, off of like San Luis Obispo area of California, but also a little bit inland, just, do you feel like um, there's been enough representation, the right representation of, of rural and working class riders? I, mean, I,
1: I, I think we always need to be talking about race, about ability, about sexuality and gender more and more, but definitely to talk about class. And I think there's mm-hmm. a lot, especially sort of working class identity. One of the things that I find it's so interesting or important to talk about is um, working class identity when it comes to sort of bodies and pain and healthcare, care, yeah. um, chronic conditions, um, hunger, right? Childhood hunger and, and poverty. Um, so definitely there needs to be more representation and more representation in stories written to children and young people, because we certainly yeah. talk about class to adults, right? We certainly report on class and the issues of mm-hmm. class in America and hunger and poverty to adults, but children need to read those stories as well. Hungry children, we need to read stories yeah. about hungry children. Yeah. Um, so yeah, important work to still be done there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm I'm just I don't know how to formulate the thoughts, but just kind of makes you think about like the like the opioid epidemic that often has happened in rural areas, right? And and just the idea the way that it's been that the pain I guess sometimes the the rural areas have been maybe romanticized mm-hmm. and you're really pointing to like you know the pain and the struggle and I, that's an interesting idea about you know kids need to learn about it first not not before it's too late but like yeah there's a lot of spotlight on adults but not on the kids so mm-hmm. I don't really have a question there. I'm just kind of ruminating on that thought thank mm-hmm. you for that mm-hmm. <laughs> so i wonder kind of about like real world experiences and where you um I guess where the writing bug really hit you talked about I guess it so it's always kind of been there, but maybe more concretely, how you got into writing, and who are some of those writers and 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 works that really accompanied you on your on your journey? You know, as you got into high school, college, graduate school.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, I'm very much sort of a scholarship kid. I where I lived is not where I went to school. I was kind of bust several towns away and, and went to school there. I felt very much like a fish out of water um, in my in my sort of school district, um, and I found that through writing, I always got a lot of praise for my writing and for my creative work. I found that through writing, I gained access to educational systems, um, and it was this really weird thing where, um, you know, at home writing wasn't valued, but in school it was, and it allowed me to kind of transcend, um, you know, boundaries or borders. Um, the first time that I really got excited about writing and thought that it was something that I might want to do Was that same teacher I mentioned before that gave me the stacks of Joan Didion books. Uh, She assigned us a creative journal to do for I think a month maybe Um, and she would write in the margins of your journal and so I was writing about song lyrics and movies and my feelings about planets and asteroids (laughs) and plants and rocks and things like that. And she always had a wonderful comments and she would engage with me in the margins. Mm. And then when the assignment was over, she invited me to keep writing. Um, and I said, Oh, somebody wants me to keep writing and they want to read it. And it's mm. not an assignment. And so I wrote in the journal all, all year. I filled two big journals up and we just kept exchanging uh, pages back and forth. And it was the first time that somebody had wanted to read About my construction worker dad or about my rock collection or about, you know, living in a town that was 115 degrees where people didn't have air conditioning and they were sweating and passing out in the streets. And I, I was really intrigued that somebody wanted to hear those stories or thought that they were interesting. Um, that's when I decided to be a writer I and mean, go to college and get an MFA and a PhD in creative writing. And It was always nonfiction focused. I always wanted to write about the real people I knew because they were never in, in the books that I read. I mean, we were reading The Great Gatsby in high school. There was never yeah. never a construction worker father or you know, somebody struggling to feed their family. So those were the, the pieces I wanted to write.
0: Are you saying you couldn't relate to those characters in Great Gatsby?
1: I don't know why. I don't know why. It wasn't wow. the same thing with Catcher in the Rye. It wasn't really for me.
0: <laughs> East egg and all that, man. Yeah. Uh, man, what an what an invitation from that teacher to, to write more. That's so cool.
1: Yeah, it was great. It was and, and a, a lot of her time, right? A lot of time and energy. I'm sure she had, you know, hundred plus students and stuff for her to do. Mm. I think she recognized sort of a hunger to to tell a story or a hunger yeah. for an audience in me. Yeah.
0: I just think, I mean, you know, as a, as a writing teacher, writing professor, it's like we and, and writers, the students often think of it like, OK, we're done now. Like, here's the even, you know, here's the final draft. yeah But even the rough draft is kind of finished in some ways. Right. It's like, no, we I just love that invitation to like, tell me more. Yeah. Maybe not start a new assignment or, you know, but that's oh, so cool. And those margins are so important. Right. Those those conversations that are had there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and her, her bringing books to me. I mean, again, nobody, nobody in my world had books. I mean, that's, that's mm. a luxury to be able to purchase a book, mm. to own a book. And she would just bring me stacks and stacks of different kinds of books, half of which I don't even remember the titles of it was just whatever was on the top of the, the, you know, the sort of literary list that, that folks are reading during the year. But I loved it. I think she gave me one of my first, sort of best American essays, um, mm. anthologies, she just would bring them to me. She let me keep all of them too, which is Oh, Again, it's really yeah.
0: amazing that she was doing that. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So who are maybe some of the nonfiction writers, even up to today, who are some that in you know, in, in those days it really just absolutely shocked you and gave you a catalyst of that double idea of like I could never write as well, but also I want to do this. And you know, like I said, even up to today, some of those maybe doesn't have to be only nonfiction, but some of those those nonfiction writers who really thrilled you.
1: Yeah. So I'll say um, the early writers that I discovered when I got to college were writers like Jamaica Kincaid, who I just absolutely mm-hmm. love, Audrey mm-hmm. Lord, um Sandra Cisneros. Those were the writers that were speaking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, now I primarily read poetry and I always tell folks, uh-huh. if you want to read, if you want to write prose, you must read poetry. And so writers like Chen Chen, um, Donica Kelly, um, Saeed Jones, Dana Smith, Ada Limon. I mean, there's just so many writers who are producing mm-hmm. just really wonderful work. Torney, Great House, Dorothy Chan. Um, so just a lot of poetry. Poetry is where I get a lot of energy from and where I like to um, spend mm-hmm. my time in the pages.
0: So I don't know if it's if it's imminent or it's already happened. But you know the Ada Limon has poetry in space? Yes, yes, I saw that recently. Yeah, right. wonderful. Some, some like she was commissioned by NASA to write the poem or something. So yeah, cool. so mm-hmm. cool. You mentioned Jamaica Kincaid, girl. Do you ever teach girl?
1: Oh, always, always.
0: Man, I I don't even know where to begin. So so mm-hmm. incredible. I wonder if you've ever read Dagoberto guild
1: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: I'm thinking construction worker for sure, right? Definitely. I just wrote yeah. about those similar. oh very cool. Okay. Well, thank you for those. Um, some great writers in there for sure, and that's really interesting. Gonna remind me to read more poetry, mm-hmm. help with my prose. That makes a lot of sense. Halfway from home essays is the collection that we're gonna talk about mostly here. And congratulations on the Nautilus Award.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm impressed how I am I'm sure it's like the whole thing about you don't see how the sausage is made as far as like the ordering of it and you know, making the edits, even after they've maybe been published already in a magazine, but like for the final, you know, doing those edits and making it coherent and all that. But it just seems like um, you write with one voice, but you also write with many voices and that's like a compliment like but I just feel like they all come together. How did you decide to order them the way they are. How did you know how did you see them as a as a unit, instead of separate entities.
1: Yeah, so um, when I'm talking about Halfway Home, I always like to start with where the book kind of came from. Um, Most of this was written during the early months of the pandemic. um, And at that time, everybody was making sourdough and I could not find flour and I don't bake to begin with. Um, So I just wanted to write, but I couldn't actually focus on any kind of writing. Um, I couldn't focus my thoughts. I couldn't focus um, on any kind of long form work. I couldn't imagine writing a book. So I just wanted to write essays for fun. Um, Mm. I was wanting to write essays that brought me joy. So I was writing essays about picking berries with my family as a kid Mm. in California or like learning about prairie grass when I lived in Nebraska or, you know, watching all the animals um, in the woods around my house now in Massachusetts. And eventually I realized that all these sort of disparate essays were all in, in a sense about home or they were all about searching for a sense of safety um, in a world that feels very unsafe and very unstable. Um, So once I realized that that's what the essay collection was trying to do, I was able to fill in the gaps or find the pieces that needed to be added to the collection to round it out. And so Halfway From Home is, you know, essentially a collection about me leaving a fairly chaotic home at 18 um, and trying to find homes across America. So I lived in the West Coast for a time um, in the Midwest and then in the East Coast. Um, It's about sort of watching my family be ravaged by addiction, by illness, by poverty at the same time that the nation was growing increasingly divided and the natural world was sort of under attack. Um, And it's a collection about contemporary grief right collective grief collective longing about the perils and the pleasures of nostalgia and about trying to just find a home in the world when the world feels chaotic and like it's falling apart
0: here it is halfway from home essays and the beautiful dedication is uh, for my father i love you more than all the fences the epigraphs and even as I have been a wanderer all my life, I searched for home. Mary Pfeiffer, am I saying that correctly?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And then Kwame Dawes, who I believe is is or is the former director of the MFA?
1: Yeah, the PhD program in Nebraska, went to creative writing
0: program. Right. Home is where you want to be buried. And the first piece is called excavation. And that's, you know, we have these dig sites. They're like entries or what's the word? Um, dispatches, if you will. Right. There's maybe, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe more. Um, 1991, San Miguel, California, you know, you describe your dad as, as quote map, ma- map maker, enforcer, creator, which I think is so cool to think about those different roles and just about you working with dirt, um, you know, the treasures you find and a big part of the excavation is that you, You know, you come, you share what you've, you've found with your family, with your dad, with your mom. And there's a little bit of, we're still not sure. We can maybe lean one way or the other, whether or not your dad had put them there. He'd put them kind of in the topsoil, and you mostly seem convinced that no, it couldn't have been right. These are things that, that I found. I just wonder about, about excavation and um, I guess where kind of some double meanings there, you know, I mean, you're literally Excavating things, taking things out of the soil. Your dad works with fences and and dirt, but I wonder maybe his connection to, to ideas of home, excavation, and these treasures that you find slash were given.
1: Yeah, for me, the idea of excavating is very much tied to the idea of of essaying, of, of writing an essay, mm-hmm. which is that you've got the story on the surface, and then you have to get beneath, beneath the surface or below the surface to figure out, you know, what the real story is. And so my father's work as a fence builder, I've always pretty closely aligned to my work as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. So he would put up boundaries and and borders that made sense on the surface. But in order to do that, he would have to dig beneath the surface to set the posts, to see what the fault lines were and what was happening beneath. Um, So that, that has always played a role in the way that I think of of essay writing. Um, but the idea of excavation as a running metaphor theme throughout the collection um, is pretty prevalent. So when I'm thinking of home, I'm thinking of um, you know, how do I make sense of the fact that the natural worlds that I've lived in no longer exist, right? Climate change has devastated a lot of them. Um, I have to excavate, you know, my, my understanding of place. Um, how do I make sense of my family? Because my family has um, deep threads of addiction, of illness, of poverty, of violence. I have to excavate my feelings and my understanding of what a family is and what a home is. Um, how do I make sense of myself as somebody who, you know, has, has said that I'm a, a wanderer and a searcher for home, but as someone who doesn't ever like to stay in one place for very long, mm-hmm. how do I excavate, um, my own thoughts and feelings and emotions? So the idea of digging of, um, looking at what has been buried, of burying some other things, um, of thinking about what does it mean to uncover, what does it mean to to cover things up, is something that's important in that opening essay, but also throughout the collection. And not just personally, not just for me and my family, but looking at climate change, at social and political upheaval, at the pandemic response, which I talk about in the collection. Um, So that idea of excavating and digging things up to make sense of them uh, runs throughout the collection.
0: some of the most my my favorite endings are the most beautiful endings i think of like imagined endings you know so we get to know the relationship you have with your father we get to know how much you enjoy the the treasures and you how you're kind of confounded by wait a minute like you said you 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 put them there but the last image from excavation or the last part is about um, what you imagine it would be like if your dad were to be sprinkling these treasures and it's just, uh, again, I, I don't really know, know how to put it into words, but I just love this idea of this imagination that's based on um, what you know and what you want to be true. So I wonder how how that ending came came in, in that it is imagined.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I think is most fascinating about nonfiction is the way that truth is Mutable, right? So there's mm-hmm. the things that we know for certain. There's the things that we believe based on our memories or what our family members have told us. There's the there's the, the, the truths that we want to believe, mm-hmm. um, based on changing circumstances. Um, so in the in the case of the essay that you're talking about. Um, you know, I made it through most of my 20s, believing that there was just this abundant treasure hole in my backyard that happened to be three inches deep. And then um, I I think I was almost 30 when my father told me that he was the one that had been putting all these, all these trinkets in there. And I didn't want to believe him because I wanted to have that child sense of wonder and awe to be a child pulling pennies and ceramic animals and gemstones out of your treasure hole one of the most magical feelings ever mm. um but then as I aged and started thinking about my father and the work that he did as a construction worker you know 12 hour days in the heat with, with no lunch break or water break the fact that he would stop and and take these trinkets and treasures yeah. up to bring home to me became a new sort of truth that I wanted to be able to write about yeah. and so that's why we have that imagined ending of trying to think back to the the father of that time period in my life you know, Covered in cement, caked in dirt and sweat, stopping to pick up an old an old rock because he thought that I would like it and bring it home for me.
0: Mm. A few essays in, I mean, I assume from the cover, am I correct? I mean, those, those are Flames. Mm-hmm. yes right it's about fire I mean there were uh multiple fires when you were in in mass in Massachusetts in the apartment complexes you know friends of yours there's connections to like you know sodom and Gomorrah these you know you're talking about the the children's Bible you were given and not just the Bible right but just I just think of some of the stories we we're, we're, we're told as kids you know like the the boogeyman and kukui and you know some of just like incredibly scary things that we're not at we're not equipped to handle even right um you know i mean the Solomon gomorrah story obviously has been used in so many different ways for you know homophobic rants and the whole deal but i wonder just about about fire obviously it's one of the main elements of life but it just seems like it the fire just followed you and your friends i wonder kind of where you started to i guess were those links natural or did you feel like they were something you kind of excavated and then you really found the, the meaning in them does that make sense
1: It does. Yeah. Um, I'm someone who is a very sort of thematic and symbolic thinker. So when something happens in my life or when I see an image in my life, it becomes a symbol or an image for for, a way for me to make sense of whatever is happening at the time. And this essay was written right when I moved to Massachusetts Um, and as somebody who, is from California. Um, moving to the East Coast, I experienced darkness in a way that I had never experienced before. Um, just um, lots of cold, lots of dark. I felt like I couldn't get warm, so I was constantly lighting fire mm-hmm. to try to warm myself up and to get through the winters. Um, and that year, there was all sorts of strange flames happening everywhere. There were social and political flames and the fanning of those flames. Um, that was the year Notre Dame burned. Right. Um I had a friend, a very dear friend, whose um, grandmother was lost in the Paradise fires of California, yes, yes. Um, and was never found. It was it was just a tragic thing, and so I wanted to look at um, the nature of flame. I, I'd always been afraid of fire as a young child. It was something that really haunted my dreams. But as an adult, I felt like it was following me and haunting me. And you know, we were saying a lot of the time, you know, the world's on fire, right? Everything's on fire, and mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of unpack that. Um, but the book is a lot about duality. So even though there's the destruction of flame, the destruction of fire, I also know that in Nebraska, which I write about quite a bit in the book, Mm -hmm. flame is what, you know, takes the prairie grass down to the dirt level and allows it to, you know, rise again, even stronger. And so a lot of the the essay and a lot of the collections about understanding destruction and rebuilding and the ways that things must be destroyed before they can come back. Um, So, Yeah
0: a couple uh essays on is it's about i think it's actually called nesting is that right yeah and you know there's so this idea of the wasps and kind of like homes within homes right they i mean so you're talking about them them building like their nest or their hive what would you exactly would you call it for wasp you described like a almost like a paper thin quality to it
1: yeah like a paper mache right Mm
0: -hmm. this idea of home within home and of course so so definitely so smoothly talk about you know as a kid like you had a playhouse and that was this this whole idea of you know there were a lot of people going through your home um foster children right um a lot of you know traumas like many of us have but things that were you know you felt like maybe quiet and serenity was was tough to find and so you had the you know the playhouse as the escape it was like another again house a home within a home um you write further about you know moving constantly as you've described as being both comforting, but also maddening, you know, feeling like that's the natural way that you are, but also maybe, you know, kind of bucking against that. One of the quotes from you is, is quote, a home was not our own until we marked it, right? Which makes you think of like the animal kingdom in some ways. I wonder just about like nesting. Nesting is such a a full term, right? You know, nesting, like almost like hibernating and nesting. You think of like a mother and child and, you know, getting used to each other and getting used to the world. I guess I just wonder about ideas of nesting and like the permanence of home for you and then what it means to have a home within a home even. Yeah. It's a lot, sorry.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think it's a great question and I and I appreciate it. Um, for me, home has always been associated with, with being temporary. Um, like you mentioned, I have a very unusual family. So there's eight siblings. The oldest was in his 50s when the youngest was 15. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of years in between each of Uh, the sibling groups or pairs. There's a lot of adoptions um, within my family. I have five adopted siblings. Um, there were also foster children in between, and my parents would take in um, unhoused children, adults, sometimes entire families. And so, um, you know, the home was constantly shifting. Sometimes I had two siblings, and then the next day I had five, and sometimes I had eight siblings, and it would just, you know, double overnight. Um, and you never quite knew who was going to be there. And um, the image that I, that I give is because my father was in construction, he would build rooms within rooms. So when another body appeared, he would put a wall or two up within Mm -hmm. a room and there'd be room for everybody but the walls were always kind of caving in because we were trying to to fit more bodies in um because of that my sense of family and and home and permanence was very unstable right i just due to the nature of, of folks coming in and out of the home um and then you know to add on to that because i pursued school like a lot of millennials as you pursue your career in school you move and i would always sort of move across the country. So I, I left home to go to college, moved a few hours away, moved to Nebraska from California for graduate school, moved again to Massachusetts. I, so I now live on the complete opposite end of the country as my family. Um, and I made wonderful friends and made beautiful homes in those places, but they were always temporary. I always knew that I would be leaving one day. And so the sense of nesting, of of claiming a home is something that I both longed for and wanted, given my family's sort of instability or, or, you know, fluctuations. But it's something I don't necessarily know how to do and something that has always felt a bit, um, I guess, scary or stifling, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so I touch on that in the essay of, of how do you build a home when the only home you've ever known is one that shifts and one that's a, that's a bit chaotic or or the mm-hmm. only home you've ever known is unstable or temporary. And so that's what a lot of that that essay and the, and the collection is about.
0: Right perhaps metaphorical and, and literal, like you, you talk about, when you're talking about like rooms within rooms and just like almost like collapsing upon themselves, but even like, when's that, when's that door going to lead to another door? Yeah. Right. Like, a, like there's nowhere else to to move out. Impermanence, like you talked about seemed to be the rule and you, even going in, in that same essay talking about more current times about, you know, something, like, you know, husband was maybe more like, Hey, this is, this is the place for us. If not forever for now, and you kind of like you said your kind of inclination is to maybe fight that a bit and then you throw in right to the mix the whole 2020 chaos which maybe isn't even the right term maybe is you know it's is not even the proper term for so much unrest so much violence so much you know destruction but yeah th- this idea of nesting when we were forced to literally do so for a while is is very salient for sure
1: Yeah, I always tell folks, I I was very privileged to purchase my first, I'm very privileged privileged to own a home, first of all, an immense privilege in this country. Um, I was really privileged to have purchased it right before the pandemic. So I moved in in January of 2020, right? And so I had just moved into my first home when the world shut down. And so it was an odd dichotomy of finally claiming a space and then being unable to leave that space, like finally saying, Okay, I'll make a home here. Mm-hmm. And then essentially being stuck there. Yeah. Very yeah. strange. So it's sort of surreal for all of us, it's a surreal moment. Yeah.
0: Definitely. There's a piece on cartography, right? Mapping and you know, tracing. You, you know, I was thinking about this as this morning as I took kind of a longer walk, you know, just places that I drive by all the time and you know, noticing them more as you walk, um, little side streets and nature things and all that. And you you write about you know going from California to Nebraska, and you know later on in another piece you talk a lot about the plains and its history and the woolly mammoths and and all of this. Um, but just so interesting about you really make the point that maps really are arbitrary, right? They're manipulated, you know. They're manipulated by cartographers. You you can't talk about mapping cartography without talking about you know the imposition of European ways, you know, names. And, you know, obviously people being kicked off their native land. I I was struck by, you know, the idea of cartography too, with, you know, like you write about, you know, everything's on Google earth now, you know, it's like, I was, I was joking with a friend about this, you know, somebody now will give you, will give you physical directions and you almost don't even listen. Right. Cause you're like, I'm just going to GPS it anyway. Right. And it's almost like quaint. It's like, Oh, okay. You know, you know, and I know there are areas where, you know, physical dis- directions do matter because, you know, not everything shows up and whatever, but it's just such like a lost art, you know, and people, our, our kids, you know, age, our students age, they don't know about Thomas brothers maps and, you know, all of that stuff. So, I just wonder about like about cartography and how you kind of felt like maybe it's like a lost art, but also what it says to you in
1: 2023. Yeah. So for me, you know, that essay is set when I first leave California to move to Nebraska. And I, it was the first time, you know, again, as sort of a working class, we didn't travel growing up, you know, we didn't, we didn't really leave. Your your county, let alone your state, let alone yeah. the country, and so I remember um, just being fascinated by seeing the landscape change and being overwhelmed by seeing different um, sort of you know geological structures and different mm. plant and animal life. Um, and then when I got to Nebraska, it was just so so different, and I just I was immersed in this this new way of of living and being and, and you know reacting to the land and and to the folks in the community there. Map um, making I find to be a fascinating art form, um, a fascinating Mm -hmm. form of control and coercion, like you talked about before, because maps are completely arbitrary. Um, Early mapping and and map making, um, you know, could shape the way that a a traveler viewed the landscape based on the natural resources that they advertised,
0: Mm. based
1: on the scale, um, based on the landmarks that a map maker or cartographer thought was important. Um, And so there's a lot of sort of manipulation and control and artistry, of course, in those early maps. Um, But I do think it's something interesting to think about in 2023, right, as our national landscape gets rewritten um, Mm -hmm. by those in power, as certain landmarks are deemed important or unimportant based on um whoever gets to decide um as you know ways of knowing and being in place are um you know washed over by people who decide that um, certain communities don't matter and so i think there's a lot Mm -hmm. to be said for cartography and the ways that we write a nation or a landscape um Mm -hmm. today um and the other thing i'll say about cartography or or being in place or immersing yourself in place is i i find I find it sad and it's sort of a lost art, like you said, that we mm. we can't give, I guess, natural direction anymore. That um, we often will say, "Oh, you turn, you know, turn at the McDonald's." Well, the McDonald's might not be there in six yeah, months. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and we don't. We used to say, "Oh, you turn at the." at this tree, you know, you turn at the willow tree and Mm. the willow tree will look like this in the spring. It'll look like this in the summer. And we don't know that anymore. And and most people can't go to a place and Mm. point out the, you know, the species that have been there. They can't name a tree or name a plant or name a a certain rock formation. And that's how we used to know place. And that's how we used to navigate ourselves in the world. Mm. Um, um, And now we couldn't do that. We're we're sort of lost and, and disconnected from nature in that way.
0: Are you like a member of any cartography societies or anything now? Or?
1: <laughs> no, but that would be very cool. I'd be very interested. Uh,
0: <laughs> I This is like the direct opposite of, nat- of nature. Like it's very much technology. But I I just think of the same idea, like this idea of like the lost art. I remember, I don't know, 2005-ish or something. Maybe before that, even my dad was, was telling me about, you know, I think it's like biography.com. It's a very generic. And he was just like, yeah, you know, they have biographies. of so many people. And i was like, oh, that's so cool. And it was such an, an important idea at the time. And then Wikipedia just came in and just you know, I mean Wikipedia is so interesting to me. I mean, who's writing that article on you know, some no name baseball player in his 2019 season? You know what I mean? So, but just the idea of like it was so oh cool and kind of like artisanal, if you will. Yeah. And now, and again, I love Wikipedia, but it's just like that's just just taking over everything. <laughs> right. It's like a mom and pop grocery store versus, you know, Walmart everywhere. Right. Well, thank you for that cartography. Okay. Think about like you know meetup.com. I'm sure there's cartography groups and all that. <laughs> Look into it. There's definitely a double meaning that you um, excavate. Pardon the pun so well with descendant is another piece. Um, it's a lot of it's about your your grandfather and his history in the mines, and, and more so your your family's history in the mines, even going back to England, right? Mm-hmm. Is that is that perhaps maybe, uh, Cornwall or Wales? Yeah, I don't them? remember.
1: I'd have to yeah. ask my mother and the keeper of the family lore. Yeah,
0: yeah. My limited knowledge, I think of mine, I think of like Cornwall area, but, um, but obviously you know, descendant. I like you. You obviously traffic in words, and you're so good with them. I just, I just love etymology. And you maybe think of like, wow, obviously descending, going down, as well as, um, you know, is the family line getting worse or better? Or how do you even judge that? And obviously, descendant. You know, like as an ancestor a lot about you know he he worked the mines in horrible conditions and he had to literally contort his body he talked earlier about the pain that comes with blue collar work and a lot of that you know came out in his in his rage and his pain and in, in, in drinking do you what connections do you feel to to those who worked in the mines i mean you you work with words you work more in the white collar side but i guess how have your grandfather maybe particularly anyone in general in your family just really kind of shaped you through those, through that blue collar, tough work?
1: Yeah, so um, I very much consider myself to be, I guess the storyteller of those stories that, that get lost or don't get um, acknowledged. Um, mm-hmm. When I was growing up, everyone around me, their bodies hurt all yeah. the time, and their their spirits hurt and their souls hurt. Um, with my grandfather in particular, in the essay I write about, um, he started working the mines when he was very young. When he was he quit school to go to work in the mines, and mm-hmm. he basically grew up underground. He grew up. Jeez. In the dark, which I I can't even, I can't even imagine. I I know nothing of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same with my, you know, my father, my uncles, um, everyone did manual labor, their bodies were so marked um, by that work. And I think it feeds right into what I what I discuss in the essay, which is my family's legacy and history with addiction, right? Because if the reality that you know, is Bodily and and spiritual pain, right? And and sort of unrelenting work that is your entire life from the moment that you can work until the moment that you die. You do work. Nobody retired. Um, nobody mm. had medical leave. You just you just worked. Um. Mm. And I think that it, it's only natural that folks would turn to um, alcohol and drugs for some sense of escape. Um, and so that, that family legacy, not only of physical bodily labor and pain, but also of addiction is, is one that's very much run through all the sort of limbs of my family tree. Um, most of my family members suffer um, very much from addiction and have their entire lives. And it's very hard to write about, hard to be part of. Um, And something that I don't think that anyone that grows up in that environment is really sort of free from. So I talk in that essay about this sort of specter of of darkness that I feel sometimes if I drink too much, right, I I can kind of feel something that Mm. I, I think is akin to what my grandfather probably felt just like a familial darkness um, um, and a haunting sort of legacy Um, and it's why I'm I'm quite cautious about about drinking it's why I'm Mm. cautious about um, you know what I put into my body Um, but you can't escape it it doesn't matter if you if you choose to drink or not you can't escape that Mm. that sort of marrow kind of knowing um, Mm. that extends from generation to generation.
0: I wonder how you kind of Balance it all or weigh it all, like you know, you, you write about how your grandmother was very much get, was scared of his of his violent moods, right, and mm-hmm. perhaps physical violence.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I,
0: I mean, and but you like you talk about, I I have no idea what it is to to live underground all the time, to to drop out of school, you know, and and just to work to work for pain, pain, pain. I wonder how that does that help humanize him? Does it? Is it still, you know, especially when it comes to like things that are pretty reprehensible, like like domestic violence?
1: Yeah, my goal with nonfiction is always to I think complicate humanity, right? It's way too easy to cast a hero and a villain. Like that's that's not you know real, it's not interesting, it's not no. what I to to read about. So for me, it's you know, I want to understand my grandmother. Um, what she went through, why she stayed. I want to understand my grandfather. Who was he at one point? How did he change? What versions of himself did he lose along the way? Mm -hmm. I want to understand my siblings, um, my biological siblings and my adopted siblings, many of whom, all of whom suffer from addiction in various forms um, and and have um, some abusive and violent histories themselves. Um, And so it's always about Understanding, understanding, and empathy are different, right? And mm-hmm. understanding or empathy and excuses, excusing behavior is different. I never want to rationalize violence. I never want to rationalize domestic violence or sexual abuse. But I want to understand the various circumstances surrounding it and to create a complicated portrayal of it, uh, because I don't think we get enough of those really nuanced portrayals of violence, addiction, sexual, mm-hmm. you know, of assault, and abuse. Yeah. Right.
0: One of the pieces you is called Carve. You just talked about it, like the sometimes literal imprints from violence, but you know, the imprints, the traumas that come with with violence in, in the family, outside the family, to salt with addiction. The That piece ends with maybe, there's maybe one other piece that's like second person and it's almost like a call to action or almost like commanding. I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's like, you know, do not crack to the marrow. Again, if we're talking about like carving and and bones and fossils and the narwhals is mentioned, something and I, it's so beautifully poetic, it's something about like be slick with oil so you can't be held down. You were just talking about like not really judging and and complicating things. I wonder if, if you feel like that's like normal de- if that's like a departure from your normal kind of almost like giving advice or do you know what I mean? Like using second person rather than stating something and the reader will do with it, what he or she may.
1: Yeah, so um, Carve is sort of an interesting essay. I was really, I'm really interested in Scrimshaw. I, yeah. Now that I live in, in sort of New England, there's Scrimshaw shops everywhere. And I find Scrimshaw to be such a strange art form because mm. you're carving into bone, right? You're, you're making art by scarring the bones of something that is no longer living because it's been hunted. Um, right. And I thought the metaphor, of course, um, you know, fit quite well with with domestic violence or sexual assault. Um, But that departure at the end, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's a move that a lot of nonfiction writers use to get some distance, right? It allows you to move to the second person to get some distance when talking about my personal experiences with domestic violence and sexual assault, my family's experiences. Um, But I also wanted to tie my experiences again to this art form of scrimshaw so it becomes a command for both the artist the scrimshaw artist mm-hmm. um, and also the reader or someone who's experienced sexual assault or domestic violence themselves
0: right that like so that was like so, so poetic just the idea of using that oil in different ways and using it to to heal just there's just a lot going on there for sure there are a lot of themes that come out throughout there's we talked about already the idea of of home and the evolving idea of what home is nostalgia comes up a lot you even talk about the history of the word break it down um it was, it was kind of like it was kind of constructed right by uh i want to say nor- like finnish or swedish scientists the word nostalgia yeah.
1: yeah it was a graduate student who posited that word in his thesis
0: yeah so it's technically greek right but it comes from two greek words mm-hmm. um yeah. One of your lines about home is, "quote only is only home because it'll be gone one day." And there's so much about, like we talk about evolving home, evolving homes, and coming home to what was, you know, where you grew up in the, the central coast area of California. And because of climate change, because of just life, things are different. Things aren't there anymore. Things are temporal. I feel like I just I'm so interested in this word that I, I would steer the conversation here anyway. But you definitely talk about it. Like then there's almost this idea of like missing something you never had. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you're familiar with the the Portuguese term no. that is uh, nostalgia. Saudade? S-A-U-D-A-D-E. Oh, yes, yes. Right? Yeah. It's, a, it's an emotional state of melancholic or profoundly nostalgic longing for a beloved yet absent something or someone. Right. So I guess just in general, again, I, just want, I love talking about saudade and this idea of a word that really doesn't have a translation in English, right? But what is it to be nostalgic for a home, especially when you talked about that you are not sure that you've always wanted to be in a certain place and nostalgic for a time and for a place that maybe don't don't exist and, and won't exist. It's a natural you know, concept. How do yeah. how you kind of see nostalgia?
1: I I'm fascinated with nostalgia, especially the ways that it's been used recently to to, to, to serve capitalism, right? So we're seeing all these advertisements of oh, things were so great back then. Let me sell you a product. Oh, things were so great uh-huh. back then. Let me reboot this TV show. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've always been fascinated with that, but more fascinating, I think, is that history that you talked about, which is that when nostalgia was first coined or created, um, it was seen as a mental illness. It was yeah. Something like seen as very dangerous, it had emotional and physical symptoms, it could cause death even, Um, and it was seen as something that impacted soldiers, so soldiers, Swiss soldiers in particular, would be traveling um, and engaging in battle, and if soldiers were homesick, it was seen as as dangerous, and it could spread throughout the the, the fleet and, and infect everybody, and so it was very, very discouraged. And that dark sort of undercurrent compared with the rosy view yeah, of yeah. that have now I find really fascinating. um and what I write about in the book is that nostalgia for me has always been a really lovely and like delightfully confusing feeling. I can remember being a kid and being like s- sad on Christmas morning that Christmas was was in the process of being over.
0: Yeah, I don't think a
1: lot of five-year-olds are thinking that, but like I would be opening presents being like, oh, I'm so sad that this wonderful Christmas is dying. (laughs) Like, and that's Mm -hmm. how I viewed a lot of things and things are only beautiful because they're going to leave and Mm -hmm. something is only um, meaningful because it's going to end. And so I'm really interested in that kind of interplay of of time and beginnings and endings Mm -hmm. Um, and nostalgia, especially for place. I write a lot in the collection about, missing places that are no longer in existence because of climate change or because of organization or development, um, missing people that are gone, um, because you're not in touch with them anymore because they've passed, um, or because they've changed, including yourself, right? Missing versions of yourself that you are no longer. And I write a lot about wanting to get back to earlier versions of myself before, uh, the world made me so jaded, I suppose. So right. I wanted to go back to those early versions, yeah. And so for right. me, it's all just that that wonderful, complicated, confusing feeling that I had as a kid, and that I that I'm always trying to figure out as an adult.
0: One of the big catalysts for this whole podcast is the bullet in the brain story by Tobias Wolf Yes. Right, which ends with just a beautiful recollection of you know the the careless the care yeah care, carelessness of carefree that's what i'm looking for the carefree days of childhood around all that and yeah you make such a great point it's like you know nostalgia is like oh you know when we were kids we used to we'd play until the lights came on until mom called us for dinner and like you said in in, back in the day it was it was dark (laughs) it was it was a mental illness it was we can't let it spread did you wrote about how like one of the russian um like commanders or whatever was basically like if you guys keep this up i'm gonna bury one of you alive did he actually do that
1: I I don't know if he actually sort of, it was a threat that was carried out throughout. Yeah, yeah.
0: A little different.
1: As I say, you know what? We talked earlier about Joan Didion and and privilege, right? And Mm. with nostalgia, one of the things I think is so important to keep in mind is you have to be really privileged to say, oh, things were better back then, right? Because better, who? Who gets to decide what better actually was? It's very easy to say things were better 50 years ago. They were only better for some folks, a very, very privileged group of folks. So that's something else I find so fascinating. And like, concerning about nostalgia is who gets to decide what is better and 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 why are we so tempted to go back
0: yeah that and that i'm sure that has nothing to do with maga right
1: right exactly exactly (laughs)
0: yeah shoot I, i mean i think if you know people say oh you know 50 years ago and times were so much more simple we would just go to the pool well even on the west coast they had pools where if you were black you can only go on certain days
1: well, and we're seeing a great right. unrolling of of so civil liberties right now, right? I'm thinking of all the, you know yesterday's Supreme Court passing all sorts of things that mm. that are unrolling or going back in time, mm. and removing the civil liberties for large groups of people. Yeah,
0: to a supposedly better time, right? Exactly. In quotes. Right. Oh my gosh. So you, you mentioned time and I, I identify with a lot of this, the idea of, you know, even this idea of like, Oh, this Christmas present so awesome, but it's done. And, you know, Christmas is now Christmas is 364 days away. Right. That kind of thing. And just the idea of you, you write about time and how it's, you write about like that time piece that's somewhere in the Midwest that, that Jeff Bezos keeps kind of keeps care of. And, and this idea of like self propelling clocks, and how incredibly down to the second they are, right? Without much human interaction even. But um, the idea of the pendulum, you really talk about, I think in 1656, the pendulum was invented and that like, kind of like stop time or change time. You'd figure like, oh, it'd be the opposite. You'd figure like that would make time more precise, or whatever. How did the pendulum kind of just affect the way that we see time?
1: So for me, I, I will preface this saying I'm completely biased. I dislike time. I dislike uh. keeping. I dislike clocks. Um, I've always seen time as an arbitrary sort of construct. Uh, it yeah. stresses oh, wow. a lot of people out.
0: So you're anti-time?
1: I'm anti-time, yeah. No, time's terrible, yeah. It's awful. <laughs> um, the pendulum, right? I, I mean, for me, the the image is this, like sort of swinging to your death, like swinging over your head. Uh, well, the it's, doomsday
0: it's, clock and all that you mentioned, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: the doomsday clock. And I write in, in the essay that you're referring to about, um, you know, as a child, I I didn't understand why our lives were sort of bound to the clock. And mm. for my parents, you know, of course, being sort of, they worked very long hours, 12-hour days, mm. um, time was of the essence. But for me as a kid, I wanted more time with my parents. I wanted more time mm. to be together. And so time was... Um, It was a scarce resource. There was never Mm -hmm. enough time. We were always sort of running out of time. Sorry, can I can
0: I cite the Great Save by the Bell reference there? Yeah. Did you get the Save by the Bell reference?
1: Oh no, I love Save by the Bell. Don't don't remember
0: uh, remember Jessie Spano when she was on speed pills and stuff. Yeah. yeah, Never enough time. It's true. Never any time. It's so true.
1: And then she's saying, I'm so excited, right? Exactly,
0: exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Kind of nailed it too, by the way, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, no, just, I just think it's that fear that I had as a child of not having enough time or of missing out on the timed test or, um, you know, not doing things properly and and not following the time. It's something that carries with us into adulthood, right? We live a lot of our lives based on, you know, when you're this old, you should do this and then you should do that. Mm -hmm. And we do have that, that doomsday clock, um, you know, in terms of climate change, in terms terms of social and political chaos and unrest Mm -hmm. that we're experiencing right now that is always sort of ticking in the background for us um and so those childhood fears of time running out i think are adult fears of time running out as well
0: i don't think that either of us or probably any of us could make an objective you know call on this but do you see like the idea of the fascination with time you see it as like morbid or just like natural
1: i think it's natural i mean we, we mark we mark our understanding of humanity. In I, terms I, I'm,
0: of I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, is, is it pretty, is it pretty directly linked to mortality? I mean, is that pretty safe to yeah, say? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. want to make the most of our lives. We want to make, the, make something meaningful of our lives. Um, but we often are unable to do that because we're so fixated, I think, on time.
0: Right. Makes us freeze up, right? And maybe not do anything. Yeah, that was, that was very interesting. I, I like I said, it, it resonated a lot with me, just especially as a kid and just, you know, like the, the literal ticking of, you know, some of those old school grandfather clocks and, you know, you, you describe how digital is different for you, but you still don't like it. And just mm-hmm. the ways, you know, the, yeah, just time goes. And I was so interested in, you know, like Arizona, it's mm-hmm. kind of on daylight savings time. And you cite when these, when these uh, scientists, you know, tried to keep time in the air and that kind of threw it into chaos. And, and yeah, I agree. I, I'm not gonna say I'm anti-time, but I'm more anti-time now than I was. twenty good. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> There's a lot about about cycles um, cycles of violence cycles of trauma cycles of of closeness family families being close knit you write about some of the students you had who were who were, who were scary and you do feel for them also you know maybe veterans and people who had seen a lot you write about the one student who really was seemed to be trying to put the past behind them but also you know some the demons came out um you know the terrible story about the the Virginia Tech shooter and one of your colleagues had worked, or maybe one of your professors had had worked there. Um there's a lot about about violence and hunting. And, you know, when you were you were hunting, I was definitely struck by the idea of you the gun for like a like a sign, uh, like a classic um assignment, right? And just like the preening is not the word, just kind of like the guffawing men, just like the Antonia Nelson, like in the land of men, just being surrounded by men and do this and do that. And it wasn't something that you that you loved, of course. Cycles Do you feel like in writing about these cycles of violence, of addiction, of traumas, do you feel like there's some some exorcism, some catharsis that came to you just by kind of naming them?
1: I like that question. Um, I always say, you know, as a nonfiction writer, I I I never feel like a a catharsis or like a release or like, you know, like it's therapy or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like it helps me to make sense. Of the chaos, right? And so, when when you have all of these cycles of violence and addiction, um, they can very quickly become tangled, and it's hard to see your way out of it, especially if that's your familial experience or legacy. So, in in writing it and trying to to make a story out of it on the page, sometimes a simplified story or just one part of the story, I do think that I can get some clarity. On that um i never think that these cycles um you know they don't have an end the essay has an end but often my essays end in ambiguity or an image um but yeah it does it helps to make helps me to make sense um of of coming from those narratives or from those legacies
0: yeah the the book begins and ends with your relationship with your father and you know just like he's his parents son your 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 father's daughter the beautiful idea of the digging sites to start the book and him sprinkling all the things there. Um, and then, you know, as the book goes on, there are pieces, you know, about, about aging, which of course obviously is natural. There's, there's the one piece about, I, I don't honestly know fully what a rock tumbler is. Is it, is it polishing stones? Is it putting a, a complete stone together from pieces?
1: Well, you're missing out on a rock tumbler. I, yeah, know,
0: I know, I know, I know.
1: It's a ba- You yes, just You take a bag of sort of, up, ugly or uninteresting rocks and you throw them in your tumbler with some chemicals and it, it polishes them to shine them out. okay yeah right like child but experiment yeah
0: right so in that piece there's you know it's cool about your dad really with the flourish would would bring out this cooking he he was from his his mom especially you know ideas of making something out of nothing and you know in the same way with these stones you break it down about uh, i don't know how to pronounce it pumice pumice Pumice, yeah. Right, pumice, which is like, man, pumice is like the redheaded stepchild of, of rocks, right? It's just not really good looking and it's like there's nothing to be really had with it other than to escape the bottom of your feet kind of thing. And just, you know, the different stones and what they represent and really interesting and cool connections. Um, but, you know, you, you write about your father throughout the book, just always working. You've, you've talked about that. And there was, I, I got to assume, it was a real beautiful time where after he was able to retire, there was a calm. I mean, I know anybody being a parent or just an adult like life is chaotic when you're working and you know you can't sit down and relax and sometimes your speech is a little bit more forced and you're a little bit you know more on edge and it does seem like before the the unfortunate cancer diagnosis he did have a time where he was a little bit more at ease is that safe to say
1: yeah a bit yeah able to
0: see him in a different light yeah
1: uh, yeah, I will say I wrote... Um, uh, My father, as you said, plays a really large role in the collection. He's, he's the anchoring beginning and end. He threads throughout many of the essays. And the reason I wrote the book and, and so many essays about him is because during... Um, again, I wrote this during the early months of the COVID pandemic. I was very worried for his health. I was unable to get back to see him. Um, and he was increasingly frustrating. <laughs> my, my father was a, a wonderful father and a really complicated man. And so mm-hmm. the older that I got, we started to d- disagree on most things socially, politically, environmentally. And I was trying to reconcile you know, the father of my childhood with the man I was getting to know as an adult. And so a lot of these essays, again, will show the duality of, um, you know, the man who will bring treasures home from his work site with a man who will, you know, in one of the essays, I say, he he told me as an adult to be quiet and sent me to my room when I was in my uh, 30s, right? Uh, trying to understand gender dynamics. Um, right. But yes, there, we did have moments and I, I write about them in the end, in towards the end of the collection. We did have moments, um, especially after he was able to retire and have, have some release of that, that bodily and and sort of spiritual pain where we were able to connect. And I do mention in the collection, um, he was diagnosed with cancer while I was writing the collection. Um, He passed away while I was doing the final edits for the collection. And his death really shaped the collection my sense of home, my sense of time and impermanence, my sense of identity. Um, and it really shaped the way I saw him. I mean, it's, you know, you always say hindsight is twenty twenty. It helped me to understand him a lot more. Um, and I, it's a morbid thing to say, but I always say I, my father dying was the best thing for our relationship. It made me see my childhood so differently. It made mm-hmm. me see the man so differently. Um, and I, I know he would be very excited and happy with the way that he came out in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure that he had passed away. I'm so sorry to hear that. I, you know, the the book, the book does leave it in the middle of his. You know, it does seem that he's his health was was rapidly deteriorating. I'm so sorry to hear that.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I wanted, um, it's a it's a writer's trick. I wanted him. I wanted the the foreshadowing of his passing to be in the book, but I wanted him to be alive in the final Right. Game. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. And um, you know, you you had mentioned um, you know, about like about quiet and. You know, there are many women, including your mom at times, kind of like faceless women, not in a negative way, but like a lot of them, like in the, in the family and surrounding family that you write about something basically like when the men's, when the women said stop, the men said quiet. And that really is just so telling, right? Just, it, it says so much about those relationships and, you know, the women are in one room kind of drowning their sorrows, whether it's literally in alcohol or just, you know, in each other, you know, and and talking and kind of cowering a bit and the men kind of, you know, um, doing their own thing, which is very interesting. There's obviously a lot about about gender dynamics and gender roles, for sure. Kind of the women who love these men who were at times violent and and misogynistic, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And also a lot about the value of labor, right? Because mm. men's manual physical labor is often valued over a woman's invisible domestic labor. Sure. And so the fact that we value labor, what labor gets counted and what labor gets uh, ignored.
0: That's for sure. Oh, man, man, that's, that's a very good point. And writing about it, so tough to not be able to see your father, your family as much you know, because of the pandemic, obviously, is a big part of it, you know, which is still going on, which, you know, the only three years ago really started. It's just so amazing that you wrote about it so clearly with a little bit of that time and that probably that perspective that, that came with unfor- the unfortunate passing of your father. The the relationship with your father, is, like so many of us, is evolving, was evolving from the time the book starts to, to when he passed and even to today, but you write that you're, you know, always the little girl and there is towards the very end of the book, there's a beautiful scene where you see him, I think at the airport or the train station, and you're just in tears of happiness to see him. Right. What is it about nostalgia and our parents that is absolutely something we cannot separate and divorce?
1: I don't know. I don't parents. And I think for me, at least it's the childhood self. It's, it's that my, when my parents are there, I am I am me as an adult, and I am me as a child, and I am me yeah. as all the versions in between. And there's something about that I, that juxtaposition or, the, or that compression of time, perhaps, mm-hmm. that you exist in all those forms. Yeah, mm-hmm. that brings it all back.
0: Makes me think of the Cisneros piece called Eleven.
1: Oh, yes. Right? Yeah.
0: Where you're like, you're, it's like a Russian doll. You're 10. When you're 11, you're also 10 and you're 9. So you're also, yeah. you know your father's daughter at 14 and 12 and 10. And and also, uh, I can't think of the title. It's, it's one of his essays, but Dagoberto, Dagoberto Gilb, the, the last piece when he sees his mother in the hospital is just like, it's so crushing and I'm not going to do justice because of you know the context in the previous part, but it's just like, ah, oh, mom, like, oh, mom. Like he finally is able to just talk to her on an adult level um, and it's an unfortunate time. So I again want to, express my condolences you know your father's you know he's a character in a book like he's fictional but he's obviously a real person and had a huge beneficial impact on you and the collection is i mean i started to write down themes and i think i stopped at 927 there's so much going on it's such a book that has i'm using this bad pun again it's going to have such a shelf life Because, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are maybe temporal as far as, you know, the pandemic and 2020 is very specific, but they're, they're very universal and, and timeless. So congratulations on, on so many individual pieces on their own, but they're really that alchemy that really put them all together to, to, to come up with that, that finished product. Thank
1: you very much. I appreciate it.
0: If you're so inclined, if you want to share what maybe you're working on for the future.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, So the next sort of uh, book that I'm working on is a craft book. Uh, It's a book about unlearning the ableist writing workshop and sort of creating and crafting a disabled writing practice. Um, A lot of writing advice is geared towards um, abled writers and it's Mm. not advice that disabled writers can use. It's actually advice that if disabled writers use it, uh, we risk injuring ourselves. We, you know, we can't write every day. We can't type a certain number of words a day um, some of us can't type at all um hmm. and so it's a book about really rethinking the art of creative writing and the ways that we teach creative writing and being able to implement and envision um, a disabled writing practice and that'll be out with um, sundress publications
0: all right what a necessary addition to the to the canon huh yeah.
1: i hope, hope so i hope so i yeah. think it's important i think it's something that we don't we don't talk about as, as much as we need to huh.
0: Well, yeah, like Matthew Celestis with the, you know, his craft book, which is so mind blowing. And I don't know. Did you, do you read uh, Alice Wong, the disability advocate? Oh, absolutely.
1: absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. She and has... Sony Huber has a great new uh, craft book out called Voice First, which touches okay. on a lot of different things with disability, especially Yeah,
0: Yeah. There's so much, so many exciting um, pieces coming out. Congratulations on that one. I'm sorry. Tell me again where that's, when that's coming out.
1: That'll be out in 2025 with Sundress
0: Publications. Sundress Publications. Where would uh, obviously Barnes & Noble and Amazon, even if, you know, if need be for sure, they're up there. Where would you uh, love us to get halfway from home and, and your other work?
1: I always recommend that folks buy straight from the publisher. So my publisher of halfway from home is split lip press, which is Mm -hmm. a great uh, indie publisher based out of Nebraska, um, a place that I've called home, a place that I miss dearly. So Mm -hmm. I always recommend folks go straight to the publisher. Um, It allows the publisher to keep producing um, great indie texts and then to be able to do things like travel with the books and support their authors.
0: Nice. And are you pretty easy to find, or do you want to be found online? Um, Any contact or social media info? (laughs)
1: I think every writer has to be found, has to be available online. So yeah, I've got a website, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. Not cool enough for TikTok, but yeah, I'm I'm in those other places.
0: I say the opposite. I think you're too cool for TikTok. Uh, There you go. Well, thank you so much. Congrats on the upcoming and congrats on the well-deserved award for Halfway from Home. Thanks for letting us get into the lab a little bit and hearing the rationale and the philosophy. And it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to join the ranks of some amazing writers that you've had on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode 191 with Sarah Fawn Montgomery. You can now subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P-O-1, the number one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. This month's episode is with Daniel Allen Cox, an incredible book, an incredible memoir. You're going to want to hear that episode. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, and editing, promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and i love for your help in promoting and sharing what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often-ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through ArchesAudio.com. Please tune in for episode 192 with Donovan X. Ramsey. He is a journalist, author, and indispensable voice on issues of identity, justice, and patterns of power in America. His book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era, comes out today, July 11th. Also, shout-out to Ruth Marievsky, who will be the episode 193 guest. Her book, Highly Acclaimed, Highly Waited For, comes out as well today on July 11th. The episode with Donovan X. Ramsey will air on July 18th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Sarah Fawn Montgomery, whose work, like Halfway From Home essays, gives you chills at will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you.